Acts chapter 11, verse 19. We're going to read down to the end of verse 26. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first, at Antioch. Let's just take a moment to pray before we consider this passage. Father, we ask that as we come to this passage, to these verses, to this chapter, to this book, we pray that you would help us to see clearly what you're doing in these verses. What's going on? What's happening? Help us to understand what you have been doing, what you continue to do. Help us to see Jesus more clearly. We pray for Steve as he's gone. We pray that you would give him physical strength, emotional strength, spiritual strength, endurance. Help him to actually enjoy himself as he seeks to talk with a bunch of kids about Jesus. We pray for the other camps that are happening this summer. We all probably have a certain camp or a certain group or a certain area in mind that impacted us as we grew up. We pray for these. We pray that you would use them and their staff to change hearts and lives for Jesus' sake. That children would come to know Jesus. That salvation would happen across this world this summer because you saw fit to use these camps, to use these ministries. We pray for them. We pray for us now that you would help us, help us to learn, help us to listen. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin our passage with verse 19 in the middle of chapter 11, we're drawn back to chapter 8 of the book of Acts, the very beginning of chapter 8. The passage we read is almost given as a flashback. Or perhaps these verses are better understood as running parallel to the actions and things that happen between chapters 8 and 11. You will recall that chapter 7 contains Stephen's sermon which results in his execution, his death by stoning. Chapter 8, which begins with these words, and Saul approved of his death, chapter 8 is the aftermath of Stephen's death. A persecution so great that it drives the church in Jerusalem, except for the apostles, it drives them to scatter throughout Judea and Samaria and the surrounding area. And at the end of chapter 7, it may seem that the church of Jesus Christ 
has met its end at the hands of Saul. That Saul's done everything that he can, that he's done everything he can in Jerusalem to just push everybody away. The central hub for Judaism and Christianity, where Christ did his ministry, where his death and resurrection occurred, now they're gone. It looks like everything has ended. But there's one key phrase in chapter 8, verse 4. As they go out, as they scatter, it says this, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. This is a key phrase concerning those people who, who went out, who scattered, who were persecuted. Then Luke records a series of events for us in the following chapters. Chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer, he tries to buy the Holy Spirit. He says, here, here's a bunch of money. Give me that kind of power to heal people. And then he's rebuked, given a slap on the wrist, and you can read into it whatever else happens there. Philip and the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip shows up. The, the eunuch is reading this passage in Isaiah, and he says, who is this? Who is he talking about? And Philip walks him through the Old Testament and says, here's Jesus. The eunuch, he's then baptized, and then there's this crazy thing that Philip, we're just told, all of a sudden appears in a different city. What does that mean? What does that look like? Don't know. We're not preaching on that this morning, but that's pretty cool. Chapter 9, Saul's conversion, gone from persecutor to greatest mover of the faith. And then he has to escape from the Jews because he starts teaching in Jerusalem and in Damascus. He, he starts teaching that the one he used to persecute is now actually the one that he should be worshipping, the one that he should be praising. Aeneas is healed and able to walk by Peter. He's lame for, I think it says, eight years, and all of a sudden he can get up and walk. So we see that the, the miracles that Jesus used to perform still happen in his apostles. The power that Jesus had through the Holy Spirit is now indwelling his apostles. Tabitha is raised from the dead. Chapter 10, the conversion of Cornelius and Peter's vision of, of the sheet with all these unclean animals and God declaring all food's clean, and really what he's saying is, don't call something unclean that I have made clean. Meaning, pairing that with Cornelius, going to a Gentile, going to a, a Greek, going to anybody who wasn't a Jew and saying, salvation is for you, that was a different message. That was something different than what the Jews and the early apostles had thought. And the first 18 verses of chapter 11, which we picked up at verse 19, the first 18 verses is Peter's defense of the Gentiles being legitimate citizens in the kingdom of God, being legitimate people for salvation, that the word of God has come to them as well. Now we're hopping back. So all of that's happened. Persecution. All of these things happened. Now we're going back to what happened with Stephen, his persecution, his death. The persecution the early church experienced was not by the Roman government. It wasn't by the Roman rulers. It wasn't persecution caused by the Greeks or um, any of the other people who were in Jerusalem at that time. The persecution that the early church experienced was by the hands of the Jews. It was by the people of their nation. It was from guys like Saul the Pharisee. Saul who persecutes Stephen, who has his stoning, who approves of his stoning, of his death, is on the same page and same level in terms of their religious beliefs as the Apostle Peter. These guys believed the same thing about the Old Testament, that there was a Messiah, a great revival was going to happen. They believed all of these things, and yet 
Peter believes in Jesus and Saul doesn't. And Saul is the one who persecutes Peter and the other, others in the church. They were being persecuted by their own countrymen. They were being persecuted. They were being forced to scatter, forced to run by people they formerly used to worship with in the temple. The people that literally weeks before they would have been gathering for worship in the very same location, offering the same sacrifices, seeing the same things happen in the temple. It was their own community that was persecuting them. And it's important to note the reason why they were being persecuted. We'll take Saul as the specific example. After his conversion, and after he receives his sight back, the fish scales fall from his eyes, or something like fish scales, He's in Damascus. Chapter 9, verse 19 says this. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, at once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Why was Saul persecuted? Why was Saul forced to flee? Because he was preaching that Jesus Christ was the resurrected Son of God. Because he was preaching the very thing that he formerly hated. He was persecuted and forced to flee back to his hometown of Tarshish because he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord and proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah. Notice why he's not persecuted. He's not persecuted because he was a jerk. Sometimes we as Christians take the, oh, people hate me, or I'm being you know, pushed down or afflicted, I'm being persecuted, and we use that in a very broad sense. We say, I'm being persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ, and it's really just because you're a nasty person. This isn't what happens here. There's a way of talking to people about Jesus, and it's not by being a jerk. The early church was not persecuted and scattered because they were nasty people, or argumentative, or hostile. They were persecuted for the name and sake of Jesus Christ. If the world hates you, this is Jesus' words from John 15, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to me, and the world hated me, it's going to hate you. But not because you're a jerk, but because they hate Jesus. This, that is persecution, is still happening in the church worldwide today. It's still happening at this moment around the world. There are brothers and sisters around the world right now at this moment who are in prison, who are running from the police, who have been disowned by their family, who have lost everything the world has to offer because they believe in Jesus Christ and proclaim him Lord. This is not the same thing as being made fun of at school for going to church on Sunday. Did anybody else ever hear that growing up in youth group? I know I did. We, 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 we tried to take, you know, the early church, we tried to take Acts, we tried to take what happened to Saul and the early apostles, and they said, okay, this is what happened to them, but you know, when your friends make fun of you at school because 
you would rather go to youth group, youth group instead of a school dance. That's really the same thing. That's, that's your form of persecution. You just have to, you know, buckle down and bear it. It's not the same thing. It's just not. It's not the same thing as people mocking you for believing in God. This happens everywhere, especially with social media now. Everybody gets picked on if you quote a Bible verse or say you believe in God. I think we need to stop teaching our kids that this is the same kind of thing that the early church experienced. Or that it's even remotely close to what the church in China or the church in Indonesia or the church in in fill-in-the-blank that churches around the world experience each and every day, it's not the same thing that we experience here in Canada. It's just not. And I think we need to stop telling people it is. We need to stop saying, anybody else heard this or said this? We all have our cross to bear. Maybe you've said it, and there's nothing wrong with saying it. But we need to stop saying it when you're made fun of for praying in the cafeteria or I want to be careful. I, want to, I in no way want to belittle those times that we experience hatred because we believe in Jesus, because we care about Jesus, because we are seeking to be faithful to what he says. We're seeking to follow him and do as he does. But we need to stop telling ourselves that nasty looks on the bus for reading a Bible or being overlooked for that promotion because you believe in Jesus and won't work on Sundays We need to stop telling ourselves that this is the same thing that the church experiences around the world. That people, it's not the same thing as being hunted down, thrown in prison, or even killed. People die every day because they will not deny Jesus as Lord. Brothers and sisters have died because they believe death is better than denying their Lord. Do you? We say yes, and I... I honestly would like to say that if I were in their shoes, I would do the same thing. But we can't take our context and just plop it into their context and say, look, we're both standing up for Jesus. It's a different thing. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who experience a level of persecution that we, quite frankly, can't even fathom. We can't understand. Now those who had been persecuted, or sorry, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, not mocked, killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word. What is incredible about persecution, this persecution, the persecution that the early church experienced, it didn't cause them to shut up, which should put us to shame when we sometimes shut up because somebody gives us a nasty look for reading a Bible. We, we, we keep it to ourselves, and yet these people were persecuted. They went out, and they didn't shut up. They kept talking about it. They kept talking about Jesus. They kept spreading the word. Persecution did not cease their witness. It spread it. It pushed it further from the central hub of Jerusalem. The persecution of the early church was used by God to spread the gospel far and fast. Back in chapter 8, Luke initially tells us the church scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Kind of, if you're looking at a map, just that little section kind of surrounding the basic area where Jesus had his three-year ministry. Phoenicia was on the coast north of Galilee, kind of heading up the Mediterranean Sea. 
Antioch was a couple hundred kilometers north of Jerusalem, north of Phoenicia. It was kind of up there. And Cyprus was an island in the Mediterranean Sea. If you can't visualize that and you have no idea where they are, find your study Bible, flip it open to the map in the back, and it's all there. It'll all make sense. Those words are in there, I promise. And the, the point is not necessarily how far they went, a couple hundred kilometers to get to these cities, or across part of the Mediterranean Sea to this island. The, 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 the punch isn't how far they went, it's that they kept spreading the word, that they kept talking about it, that they kept preaching, at first only among the Jews. Remember, these people who are going, the people who have been scattered, were not around for the events of the previous chapter. So Luke accounts for us 8 through 11 and a half. We get the preaching to the Greeks, preaching to the Gentiles, Cornelius. The gospel is for everyone. We get that, but these people have already gone. They've already left. They're no longer there. They weren't in Caesarea at Cornelius' house. They weren't in Jerusalem when Peter gave his defense. And he wasn't there. They weren't there when the church acknowledged that God had granted, and this is the phrase that's used, that God had granted repentance that leads to life to the Gentiles, given to them as well, not just for the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Men from Cyprus, that's the Mediterranean island, and men from Cyrene, that's actually North Africa. If you follow that map, it's it's down around the, the southern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They began teaching Greeks about Jesus. Without having Peter, without having Cornelius, without having a vision, they had this wonderful news that Jesus Christ had come and died and people could be saved and let's just tell everyone. <laughs> Please take note of an important point drawn out by these verses. These men are the tools. These men are the vessels. These men are used to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the Greeks, but it's the Lord's hand that's doing the work. That's not an accidental phrase. That's not something that Luke just snuck in there because it sounded good. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. There is definite value in planning and preparing for missions and gospel work. But it is not by human wisdom or skill or tactics that people turn to Jesus Christ, believe in him, and are saved. There are definite benefits to having smart, intelligent people involved in planning. You want people who know their stuff to think about stuff. You want skilled people, talented people, using their gifts and talents and abilities in the right areas to help further push the kingdom in the right direction. You have talented musicians lead music instead of non-talented musicians. You have people who are good at speaking, speak. You have people who are good at hosting, host. You have people who are good at going, going. You have people who are good at giving, give. You have valuable people, talented people do all of these things, and yet none of it matters if the Lord of the harvest is not with us. If the Lord's hand does not go, you think of the illustration of a, of a hammer. These guys were the hammer. But unless there's a hand holding the hammer and doing the swinging, it doesn't work. The nail doesn't hit itself. If Jesus Christ were not with us, our ministries would be fruitless. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that everything that we do here, all of the good things that we do, are useless if Jesus is not in it? We might help, help feed and clothe some people. We might help some people with addictions. We could do all that we could to change the world, to bring peace, to stop wars, to have every orphan around this world find a home. We could do all of that, and no one would be saved if the Lord's hand was not in it. No one has ever been saved because of a human deed. Only the Lord's hand can cause sinners to turn to him and be saved. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is exciting news for us because it's more for just the Jew. Which, for those of you who are not Jews, this includes me, and I would guess probably most of you, if not all of us, and that's really helpful, right? Because up until this point, what we've heard, what we've read, what we seem to understand, especially with the misconceptions that the early church first had, was this is for Jews only. This great salvation of God brought to Jesus Christ is only for the Jews. And then we get, no, it's for everyone. That's good news. It's really good news because that means it's for you and me. The Messiah has come. God incarnate has provided an atonement that pays for sin. Turn in faith and repentance and you'll be saved. Jew or Gentile, Canadian, Irish, Russian, Indonesian, and yes, even the crazy Americans, salvation is for them too. It's for all of us. Jesus Christ is a worldwide Messiah, not just the Jewish Messiah. And this is certainly a great cause for rejoicing. Let me draw your attention to just one word in verse 20. Verse 20. Luke says that these men, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. Meaning, yes, Gentiles, a.k.a. everyone who's not a Jew, can and should be evangelized. So fill in the blank for whatever nationality you want. These people need Jesus. They need salvation, and Jesus is for them. But that doesn't mean we should be done with the Jews. And I mean that respectfully. We shouldn't have this view of Jews, Judaism, of people who believe the Old Testament whether they're nominal Jews or not, whether they are the most stark Jew you've ever met. We shouldn't think that these people are a people who had their chance so many times throughout the Old Testament and so many times throughout the New Testament. We shouldn't think of them as people who had their chance and now it's done. The gospel of Jesus wasn't for the Jews and then the Gentiles and no longer the Jews. It's for everyone. The Jew still needs Jesus just as much as the Gentile. We should not have this view because we sometimes unconsciously, and I'm not saying we do this on purpose, but unconsciously, when we think of evangelism to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, when we think of taking the gospel to the four corners of the earth, we sometimes forget about the Jews, don't we? We should not think that they are a tribe, a people, and a nation who doesn't deserve Jesus or who doesn't need Jesus just as badly. Whether it's on purpose or not, we still need to recognize that Jews need Jesus. 
just as much as fill in the blank. Everyone else. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas. Good old Barnabas, right? He's the one that defends Saul in Jerusalem before the apostles, a couple of chapters before. The church is nervous. Saul used to be the guy that was looking for them, putting them in prison, taking them in chains, and pulling them away from their families, from their homes, from their work, from their Christian community. But Barnabas stands up and he says, no, hold on. I've seen what God has done in this man's life. I've heard him speak. I've heard him preach. He preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified, that he is the Son of God. Give him a chance. Let him speak. His name means son of encouragement. Luke, intentionally or not, as he writes this chapter, he uses a play on Barnabas' name. The son of encouragement, Barnabas, sees what the grace of God has done and he encourages them. The son of encouragement does some encouragement. Whether Barnabas is given this name, or, sorry, whether this is his given name, like on his birth certificate it said Barnabas, or whether it's a nickname the early church gave him because of his encouragement, he certainly lives up to his name. Throughout the book of Acts, this is what this guy is known for. This is what this guy does. This is what he cares about. He wants to encourage the believers wherever he goes to remain faithful to Jesus. And we even see that what he did for Saul in defending Saul before the Jerusalem church, he does that again with another guy called Mark. Mark initially uh, abandons Saul and Barnabas on one of their missionary journeys. He, He turns back and he goes away. And Barnabas, on a second missionary journey, he wants to take Mark along. Let's give this guy a second chance. Saul says no. He ran away. He left us. We can't afford to have him back out again. But Barnabas says no, Saul. We should give him a second chance. Let's encourage this guy to continue on in gospel ministry work. And it causes such a big disagreement that Saul takes Silas and they go in one direction and then Barnabas takes Mark and they go in a different direction. But Barnabas cared about the church. He cared about people. He cared about people like us. And he wanted people to have an opportunity to be a part of gospel ministry. Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas is a trustworthy man. He sees what God has done in Antioch and he was glad. He wasn't upset that people were being saved in Antioch and not in Jerusalem. He wasn't upset because they were benefiting from the church's struggle in Jerusalem. I don't know if you if you've thought about that or picked up on that when you were reading through this, that the church in Antioch exists because the church in Jerusalem was being persecuted. Because the church in Jerusalem was being hunted down and put in prison. So people were forced to flee, and they ended up in Antioch, and people started preaching to them because it was really bad in Jerusalem. And Barnabas, being from Jerusalem, being sent from the church in Jerusalem, could have gone to Antioch and just been bitter that things were happening because of what happened back in Jerusalem. But he wasn't. He was glad the grace of God was saving people. The Christians in Antioch were different than the Christians in Jerusalem. They looked different. 
They came from a different culture. They ran their businesses differently. They disciplined their children in a different way. They cheered for different hockey teams. Whatever it is, right? They, they were different people. And yet, Barnabas was glad that people were being saved, even though they were different. These guys probably didn't worship the same way as the church or the Jews in Jerusalem would have. For one, they didn't have the temple. They didn't have that whole system of sacrificial worship that the Jews had built their, built their entire lives around. These Greeks didn't have that. These Gentiles didn't have that. But just because they look different or smell different or do worship different, whatever it is, doesn't mean it's not worth thanking God that he has saved them. Do we, do you and I rejoice when other churches, not just us, and we have a lot to be thankful for here at Crestwood, don't we? The way that God has continued to sustain this church and grow this church, how it's so loud and annoying because of all the kids that are in the back. We have to close so many doors just so we can't hear them on a Sunday morning. That is a good thing, isn't it? We have a lot to be thankful for, but are we thankful when God grows the Pentecostal church down the corner? Or perhaps the Christian reformed up the street? Are we glad when even though people are different and do things differently, God saves people? To some extent, but typically when they're only within our own denomination, right? Whether that's on purpose or not. It's something that I think we need to break out of. Something we need to to see Barnabas' example. We should be glad when God calls sinners to faith in him even when they're different. Then Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. We see this phrase, a great number of people, a couple of times in this passage, in this section that we're looking at. Twice we're told a great number of people were brought to the Lord, or or turned to the Lord, or believed and turned in faith to the Lord. And here we're told a great number was taught. This is a rather ambiguous number, or it's an ambiguous phrase compared to the 3,000 we're told about back in Acts chapter 2. Remember Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he preaches, and he says, no, these brothers and sisters aren't drunk on wine, here's the gospel, boom. And then chapter 2 is Peter's sermon. And then at the end, we're told that so many people believed and turned in faith to Jesus Christ, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's a very specific number. But as Luke continues to write this volume, volume two of a two-part series, as he continues to write this volume, he's moved away from the specific numbers at the beginning of his book to more generic or general groupings. So we'll see multiple times the phrase, a great number. As you read through the book of Acts, that, that phrase pops up more often than a, than a specific number. And maybe it's because Luke doesn't have the specific numbers. Maybe because the church in Antioch, he doesn't know how big it is, perhaps. Or maybe it's because the specifics don't matter. Maybe numbers aren't everything we make them out to be. So we say thank you, God, for blessing this church and continue to, as you continue to grow and bring more people into our family, and that is a good thing to be grateful for, but maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't matter if we have a thousand people worshiping here on a Sunday morning, if not all of them know Jesus. If everybody shows up here and knows Jesus, that's more important than if we have five times as many people show up and don't worship Jesus. 
All that matters is that people are being saved. When Barnabas sees this great number of people being saved, he goes looking for Saul in, in Tarshish. That was Saul's hometown. That's where he grew up. That's where, um, in Acts chapter 9, we're told that that's where he's sent by the Jerusalem church. Saul gets himself into trouble because he starts preaching Jesus Christ, and the Jews want to kill him. So they send him back home. They send him to Tarshish. Does he stay there because that's the safest place for him? Maybe. We don't actually know how long he was there. Regardless of the reason he's still there, how long he's been there, it would be safe to assume, knowing Saul's character from the rest of the book of Acts, knowing Saul's character revealed in his epistles to the churches, it would be safe to assume that Saul was teaching there because that's what he does everywhere else. Saul is a teacher. He's a preacher. Barnabas also wouldn't have gone looking for Saul if he wasn't valuable in the area of teaching because that's why he goes looking for him to bring him back so that they can teach this great number of people. This is kind of a, a lost period of time in Saul's life. We don't have a lot of details. We don't know how long he was there. But I think we can draw one important principle from Saul's stay, from Saul's ministry, even though we don't know exactly what's going on. I think there's one principle we can take from Saul's ministry in Tarshish is that we should not forsake the evangelism of our own family for the sake of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you can extend that as far as you want. You can say, my family and my children, or your extended family, or however big your family gets. The Pharaoh family is a lot bigger than mine. You know, you can extend that as far as you want. Maybe it's your, your neighborhood or your town or your country, your, your, your nation, your people. We shouldn't forsake the evangelism of those that mean something special to us. We shouldn't forget about them. Once brought to Antioch, Saul and Barnabas teach for a whole year. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And when, when you're reading this, and you get to verse 26, it almost seems like Luke slipped this in here as like a Jeopardy fun fact or something, right? The first place they were called Christians. Oh, what is Antioch? Or, yeah, where is Antioch? I don't watch Jeopardy. I don't know how to answer that properly. It was in Antioch, okay? That's where it happened. But, but Luke recognizes that his readers, or reader, we know specifically that this section, this passage, this portion, this volume was written to a person or a guy or a group called Theophilus. And, and, and these guys have heard the term Christian before. Why else would he put that in there? They were first called Christians at Antioch, meaning that whoever reads, and that includes us, we've heard the term Christian before, right? I mean, we call ourselves Christians. Where did that come from? It originated right here. It means belonging to Christ or followers of Christ which we may know intellectually, we may get that. To be a Christian means to be a Christ follower, literally, and when you translate what that word means. But sometimes we fail to grasp that practically, especially in our North American culture where people can call themselves Christians because they go to church on Christmas and Easter, or we live in a quote-unquote Christian culture, which it's really shifted away from that recently. We're just Christian because that's what we are. Just like you're a Canadian or an American or an African or whatever it is, you're a Christian. 
But what it means is, to be a Christian, to call yourself a Christian, means to follow Christ, to do what Jesus does, to do as he does, to think as he thinks. This means that wherever you are, wherever you go, whatever you do, people should look at you, at what you do, and what you say, and how you act, and they should be pointed to Jesus. If you follow in Jesus' footsteps, it doesn't mean that you're following Jesus like a bunch of lemmings just blindly follow the one that's hopping off the cliff. We follow Jesus because we, we act like him. We want to become many Jesuses. Many, many Christs. I should have picked that one first. We want to be like Jesus. So in the way that my daughter wants to help Candace when she's baking cookies. She's there. She's pulling at Candace's pants, like, let me up there. I, w- I want to help knead the dough, and I want to push the button so the spinner goes around. And, well, she doesn't really want to help put the chocolate chips in. She just wants to eat them. But she wants to do what mommy's doing. She wants to help. She wanted to help me change the tires on the car. <laughs> she, she got right down there, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She had no idea what was going on, but she wanted to do what daddy was doing. This is what we should be doing with Jesus. We want to do what he's doing. And people should be able to know what Jesus says and what he does, what Jesus thinks, what Jesus expects, because of how we act. The unbelieving people of Antioch saw this group of people growing. They saw these two guys, Saul and Barnabas, teaching about a man named Jesus Christ. A good number of them were former Jews, and a good number of them were converts from paganism. Calling this group Christians, Christ followers, helped distinguish this group from other Jews or other religious people. In the New Testament, when the apostles and the writers are talking about the church, it's called the church, we're called brothers and sisters, that phrase, followers of the way, is in there. Christians is something that the world came up with, that the world decided to call these people who followed Jesus. We don't particularly know the motivations behind the name, whether it was meant to be a a nasty name or an insulting name. I'm not quite sure if that would have made sense if it was meant to be insulting. It was pretty poor uh, planning on their part. But what we do know is, is that the name Christ was so often used by the believers in Antioch, by the church, by the brothers and sisters, by the people who followed the way of Jesus Christ, it was so used by them that unbelievers thought it was Jesus' proper name and decided to mark these people by that name. They kept talking about this guy called Christ, so much so that everyone out there called them followers of Christ. Christians have been known for many things down through the ages, both as a a larger church, a global church, specific church, and as individuals. Christians have been known for feeding the hungry, for drilling wells for people who need water, starting clinics for unexpected pregnancies. We've been known for many things throughout the world. William Wilberforce was influential in the abolition of the African slave trade. George Mueller started orphanages. David Livingston was a medical missionary in Africa. Christians have sought to end poverty and bring peace wherever they go. And by God's grace, we're still seeking to do some of these great things, to be a part of this global ministry as we're 
seeking to help free children from the sex trade in the Philippines. We're still trying right now today to do great things for the name of Jesus. But none of those things have eternal significance if Jesus Christ is not proclaimed and preached in all of those things. Feeding hungry people is always good. Always good. Let me say that. Always good to feed hungry people. But it is devoid of meaning if they are not told about the bread of life. Helping soon-to-be mothers with their unplanned pregnancy is always good. It's always good. It's always good, okay? But shame on the church for doing that without telling telling them about the father who does not abandon his children. Using medical advancements to bring medical care to third world countries is always good. Always is. But their bodies will die someday. No matter how long we can prolong it or whether we can heal them physically in some capacity, how dare you leave out the word that tells them of the healer of the soul. Of the one who not just heals the body, but heals their spirit. Jesus brings meaning to what we do. Oh, to be known as a Christian, not because of our self-identification as such. Not just to be known as a Christian because that's what you say, what you stamp on your passport or whatever it is. I'm a Christian. Or because we attend church on Sundays. That's the worst reason to call yourself a Christian. Or because you've got the Jesus fish bumper sticker on your car. That doesn't make you a Christian. That, that isn't what, or shouldn't be, what people know you for being a Christian. Because you have that. Oh, to be known as a Christian by our family and friends, by our neighbors and co-workers, by the world. To be known as Christians because Christ is so often on our lips. Not because I just say, yeah, I go to church, but because you keep talking about Jesus. For the world to know that I follow Jesus simply because I won't shut up about him. Have you met some of those people? Isn't it bad how we sometimes get annoyed with those people? Anybody else ever, maybe I'm admitting something I shouldn't. Have you ever met those people that almost seem like super Christians where they're so happy all of the time? They're always talking about how Jesus blessed them in this area. And even though they had a rough time at the doctors, they're still glad that Jesus was there with them. And you're like, whoa, he's up. But, but they love Jesus. And they want people to know about Jesus. And you know these people are Christians, not because you saw them at church, but because they keep talking about Jesus. Oh, to be known as a Christian because I really do believe he changes everything. And that fact leads to me talking about him constantly. The unbelievers in Antioch called the disciples Christians because they had heard so much about this Christ. They may not understand who he was or what he did, or they didn't understand the theological ramifications of the cross. They didn't understand what Jesus had done for them. But they had heard about him. They had heard so much about him that they decided to call this group that followed after him followers of Christ. Last week, Steve briefly mentioned the Ebenezer. Anybody remember that? I know that was a week ago. It's a rough thing to ask you to remember something a week ago. We also sang it last week in the song, Come Thou Fount. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by thy great help I've come. Ebenezer means, anybody know? Stone of... Nobody remembers. Okay, good. Ebenezer means stone of 
remembrance. You should have gotten that. Remember, remembrance. It was set up to be a reminder to the Israelites about what God has done. This stone was erected, set up, put in place so that every time they walked by it and Junior asked, Lord, or Father, what is this here for? What does this mean? And Dad was supposed to say, well, son, let me tell you what God has done. Let me tell you what he's brought us through as a nation, as a people. Whether you start with Abraham, whether you start with the Exodus, whether you start with coming out of Babylon, whatever it is, let me tell you about what the Lord has done. The book of Acts as a whole, not just this passage, but as a whole, the book of Acts functions in part as the church's Ebenezer, as our Ebenezer. The book of Acts calls us to remember what the Lord has done through his people. It's a call for the Christian to remember all that the Lord has brought you through. Some of us have had a rougher six months than others. Some are going to have a rough six months. Some have maybe had a rough 20 years. Whatever it is, dear Christian, look to the book of Acts, look to the Bible, look to what God has promised, and remember what Steve brought out last week, that not one of his promises has failed and not one ever will fail. Look at what he has brought you through. It's a call for you to remember what the Lord has done, both personally, individually, calling you to salvation, and as a church. Look at where we are because of the faithfulness of God. The book of Acts is the Christian's heritage. It's the history of who you and I are as members of the global church. It calls us to be proud of our great God and his work. It calls us to do as our brothers and sisters did 2,000 years ago as they sought to teach Jesus Christ and him crucified no matter what the cost. It calls us to admit our mistakes and our failures. This book doesn't say that the church was perfect. In fact, you read some of the epistles to some of these churches that Paul and Barnabas and Silas helped found. A lot of them were pretty messed up. They had a lot of wrecked theology. They had a lot of messed up practical lives. We're not perfect. And yet we say, yes, I I stink at doing this Christian life. I'm really bad at doing this. But by God's grace, he's changing me to be more like Jesus. He's making me into what I should be. We often ask the question as a thought-provoking exercise, what will your legacy be? Anybody ever been asked that? What are people going to think of you when you're gone? What will be on your tombstone? Yesterday we were at my grandparents' 60th anniversary. And we... Had a little bit of reminiscing. What was your what was your funniest or favorite story or memory of Grandma and Grandpa? It was a fun time, and I learned some things about my grandparents that I probably didn't need to learn. But um, it it was it was neat to see generationally and having their great grandchild rip around. What what's their legacy going to be? It's neat to think about. And that, that question is meant to get us thinking about what, what are you doing now that's going to last? What are you doing that's going to leave an impact once you're gone? But I think the book of Acts, and, and, and those are helpful things, those are good things. It's a good question to ask because what are you doing right now? Are you being lazy? Is that going to be your legacy? Are they going to put lazy guy on your tombstone? Waster of time. Waster of money. 
loser, whatever it is, right? What are they going to put on your tombstone? That is a good process to work through. What am I known for? What am I doing? What do people know me for? Am I known as a son of encouragement or as a son of being a jerk? What are you known for? Those are good and healthy questions to ask, but I think the book of Acts pushes us, points us in a slightly different direction. It doesn't say, what are you going to be known for? It says, look at what God has built. Look at what God is known for. Look what the church is becoming known for. It tells you to see the legacy that God has built with his hand, not yours. William Carey, the the Baptist missionary to India, is widely known for saying these words as he drew near the end of his life. I don't know the specifics. I've read somewhere that he helped translate the Bible, portions of the Bible, into something like 40 different dialects. I think and I'll be corrected on this if I'm wrong, I think it was six complete translations of the Bible in, in six different dialects, six different languages, and portions of like 25, 35 others. He did a lot for the church. He did a lot for the mission work in India. And yet he said this, a visitor had come to chat with him near the end of his life about all of the things that he'd done. Mr. Carey, you've done some wonderful things. Mr. Carey, you've you've impacted so many people. Mr. Carey, you've started this. You've done that. You've been here. You've been there. And this is what William Carey says. You have been speaking about Mr. Carey. When I am gone, say nothing about Mr. Carey. Speak only about Mr. Carey's Savior. May God help us live our lives not for our legacy, Not for the legacy that we leave or the name that's going to go on our tombstone, but for the name of Jesus Christ in his glory. May he help us live our lives with Jesus constantly on our lips, so much so that people call us Christians because we just keep talking about Christ. We serve a great Savior, don't we? May he help us praise him each and every day as we thank him for the salvation that we have and as we seek to go preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up now as we sing our praises to our Savior, Jesus Christ.